0: Pain may be caused by tissue damage, but it may also be masking a deep-seated attachment to one's identity as a professional, a spouse or parent, and as one sees themselves. Living in pain may imbue every aspect of one's life. This is a normal part of the human experience. But how can we as clinicians help our patients work through their pain attachment? Listen as Charlie Merrill and Jesse Guasco walk us through how to look under the hood at attachment to pain. It may not be glamorous, but how many of our chronic pain patients may truly benefit from this mind-body work. Welcome to episode 70 of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. Dr. Jesse Guasco, a double-boarded physician in psychiatry and osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine, will be co-hosting tonight, and we greatly appreciate his insight and expertise. In episode 62, we spoke with Charlie Merrill, a physical therapist, about ways to break the cycle of fear around bodily pain and how to find and cultivate safety in the body. During that conversation, Charlie brought up the idea of attachment theory So tonight we're going to take a deep dive into this topic. For those who who did not listen to our previous episode, Charlie is the founder of Merrill Performance in Boulder, Colorado. He is the co-creator along with Dr. Howard Schubiner of Beyond Pain Education for clinicians who are traditionally body oriented on how to transition toward a more psychosocially informed approach to pain and function. He has his own YouTube channel Merrill Performance which you should check out. He is a wealth of knowledge, having spent over 20 years working in mind-body medicine. Thanks, Charlie, for coming back on the podcast this evening to talk to us about attachment theory.
1: And I want to start so I don't get myself in trouble uh, and to make sure we're talking about the right thing, to clarify that I'm not going to be talking about attachment styles um, necessarily, although that might come up, um, but rather to talk about attachment and identity, and how that can create a barrier to people unlearning chronic symptoms, right? Different from attachment styles, which um, get into family of origin and your parents and how you were or were not, you know, seen and heard and celebrated when you were young. So just to make sure (laughs) (laughs) that that kind of attachment... I think
0: that's a that's a great clarification right from the get go. So I really yeah, I appreciate that. And we do we do have to thank you because you are in San Diego, California right now, taking in the sun, listening to the waves, and you could be hanging out on the beach, but you're here chatting with us. So thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, I'm like doing my two favorite things, talking about this these topics and looking out at the ocean. So I, I can see the ocean, which is really all I need.
0: that's great uh as always charlie i always like to start out and i know i've already asked you these questions but if you wouldn't mind sharing with the audience another one of your many hobbies
1: sure i hope this is different from what i shared last time and i uh i've really been loving cold plunging and cold exposure and while it's something i've done for a long time like sporadically i've made it a much more regular part of my daily routine and i'm just really enjoying sort of the novelty and the wonder and awe that comes from doing something really hard
0: are you taking like an ice bath every day or or like a cold shower
1: i'm trying to do it four or five days a week and i really don't like cold showers i find them extremely uncomfortable so i've been getting in cold baths ice baths which i much prefer for some reason there's something like (laughs) meditative about it and i'm like lying down instead of standing up i don't know i don't really know but somehow i i just there's there's something about that extremely cold water that does something important for me
0: yeah so it kind of brings you into i guess what 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 does that extreme temperature, if I can just tap into that just a little bit, what does that extreme cold do for you, maybe mentally?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of science on this, right? And people talk about norepinephrine and dopamine and uh, all, of these, all of these things changing. I, I feel like for me, the essence of it is just the satisfaction of doing something really challenging and how mm-hmm. energizing it is for me. Um, it helps me really f- be, be really clear and focused in the moment because it's really all you can think about. And then you come out of it feeling alive and energized in a way that is hard to reproduce. Um, I, I definitely have noticed that I get less cold, not that I really had a problem with that before, but people that do it often say they get less cold on cold days, um, hmm. which is a nice side effect. Um, it feels really good you know for my skin and just for for my body in general I I noticed that I'm I'm leaning out without really changing much else Um, people talk about it selectively burning brown fat you know you yeah you do like people have done whole podcasts on the physiologic response to cold but but for for my purposes I just I find it like a really uh, joyful daily affirmation uh, to do something hard like that, and 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 to just enjoy the benefits thereafter.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's a great primer to start the day off. Actually, you know, overcoming something that you don't want to do and you do it. I have I've started that practice myself. I've been doing it for a while. Actually, the cold shower, and I've realized what a mental game it is. You know, to gosh, you don't want to. You're you're you go from your warm cozy bed to this cold water and it's gosh it's it's such a it's such a mental challenge but yeah you're right after you go through with it i just find it it's a it's a great way to start the day and kind of face the challenges that the day is going to bring so yeah,
1: yeah I, re- I really love it and i i i recognize that if i do it too much i'm going to adapt to it and it, it won't have the same benefit so i'm trying not to like overdo it I feel okay. like there's a great dose like there is with lots of things. And I also don't force myself always to do it when I don't want to. I kind of wait for the inspiration to strike. Really? And, okay. And that's that's been working well for me so far. So,
0: nice. Nice. And, and of talk- course, I'm
1: here in San Diego and the ocean's really cold. And so now going in the ocean feels like really nice. Even though it's <laughs> the winter and everybody else seems to think it's really cold. It's, to me, it's really comfortable. It's beautiful to be in the ocean this time of year. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. What about Charlie, a book recommendation?
1: Yeah, I just I just started reading The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. Um, for those of you who don't know him, he's a Hungarian-born physician. He's worked a lot in the addiction space and talks a lot about, more and more about trauma. And I'm just getting into the book, but I, I've been really enjoying listening to his podcasts because I really like the way he talks about trauma normalizes it and sort of opens up the conversation about it being like a societal level problem more than like you know this rare thing that happens to some people um, and in doing so I think I think by normalizing it, it really it really um, it really allows us to understand it at a much deeper level and mm-hmm. I think it makes it more accessible to clinicians.
0: Yeah. And again, the name of the book was Myth Noble?
1: The Myth of Normal.
0: The Myth of Normal. Okay. I'm glad I clarified that because I was way <laughs> off.
1: Yeah. He's an, he's an incredible human being. So if you ever listen to him talk about it, um, he's very matter of fact and, and very clear uh, when he talks about these ideas that are quite complex and yeah. sensitive. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's great. What a great recommendation. What about a movie or documentary?
1: Okay, so I thought about this before we got on because I love documentaries. And I especially like documentaries about athletic stuff. I think last time <laughs> I might have referenced the guy who wrote up the whole enchilada trail. Yeah. And Dr. Um, Guasco and I both watched it. <laughs> did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't he a cool guy? All right, mm. so I have, a, I have a new one for you. So this one is called Kalani, um, gift from heaven. And this guy is a Brazilian waterman who uh, spends time swimming in the most the biggest waves in the world in Nazare in Portugal, body surfing waves that normally big wave surfers take on he's in the water with fins swimming through the most incredible waves you've ever seen and body surfing these waves. And I just, I haven't seen anything like it. It's incredible. Okay. That's cool. Yeah.
0: I'm definitely gonna look that one up too. Yeah. Well, well great, Charlie. Let's, uh, yeah, let's move on to our topic, pain attachment. So last time we were talking about finding safety in our body and trying to detach ourselves from, from fear in our body, living in our body. And you, you brought up attachment to pain, and we didn't have time to go into it. So that's why we wanted to bring you
1: back on today.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, what is it that uh, you'd like to share or dive into?
1: Yeah, I love the way you just said that. It's such a great start to the conversation because, you know, the big idea here is that once we get used to having pain and other chronic symptoms, um, subconsciously there's a certain amount of safety, believe it or not, in that experience. And the big idea of what we're talking about today is that there's actually fear in the absence of those symptoms. And because this is so subconscious for most of us, for all of us, um, it really sometimes takes a very explicit, um, calling out the wrong word, um, cause it sounds judgy, like an explicit conversation around this phenomenon to normalize it. And otherwise, um, it sort of runs in the background and I find that it really creates a barrier even when you're doing other, th- every, everything else under the sun, um, the, the fear of the symptoms going away can actually be significant.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I just like to share a brief story of, you know, one of, one of the patients that I had who has been living in chronic pain over a decade and has had a full spectrum workup with imaging and, you know, autoimmune labs EMGs and nobody can figure out what's, what's going on. And he came to me and we were talking and we were kind of having a mind, we were having a mind body talk. And it was, it was such an interesting conversation. One moment he said, Dr. Green, this idea just occurred to me. And it's exactly what you just said, Charlie. He said, I've been living with chronic pain for more than a decade. And I'm honestly not sure what life is like not living in pain and I'm afraid to let go of my pain. Like I'm attached to, to my pain, I realized that. And I thought, wow, what a profound uh, come to Jesus moment, I guess, I, or just you know realization.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing, you shared that story with me. And I, I have to say, I don't think I've ever had someone acknowledge and recognize that on their own accord and talk about an insightful moment, right? Like an aha moment for someone that's a very Mm -hmm. self-aware client that you're talking about there. But, but I wonder, like, did you have a conversation about to, you know, to take it to the next level about what's the fear of the symptoms going away for that individual? Like, what are the, what are the things that 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 might change for him that, that would create fear.
0: We haven't, we haven't taken that step yet. He, he simply came to the realization that I'm attached to my, my pain. And he essentially said like, I don't know what to do with myself if I don't have pain. Right. Um, But no, I, Okay. Yeah. I think
1: it would be a a really interesting next step conversation, right? Because um, I think from a big idea from a meta level, it's the idea that the absence of pain leaves a void and the, the void is the scary part. Like who am I without this? And what does life look like and what are my thoughts and feelings and behaviors like if there's no pain? The, the absence of an answer can be really scary, um, mm. e- even though there's probably something really beautiful on the other side of it. You don't know that, right, until you go through the process. Yeah. So so I, I think, you know, it usually leads, um, I, I can just share a few examples from a client I saw recently. One of the consequences of not having pain meant that uh, this client would have to, to go back out into the community where COVID was a bigger risk and expose herself to more germs and more possibility of getting sick where prior to this, she could hold up and that felt very safe to her, even though the world got very small. So the fear is now I have to go out back into society. Um, Another, as we were talking about this and unpacking this, which was actually, she had a lot of resistance to this conversation. Um, one of the other challenges was she wasn't sure she'd be able to set boundaries for herself around her work like she did before the shutdown when her symptoms started. So her fear was if she didn't have symptoms and she could go back and start working again, she might start overworking. She might not be able to set the boundaries that, that uh, she'd gotten used to right over the course of the shutdown. Um, And then the third thing that she brought up was the reality that it also meant that she might have to be social again. And when you struggle with social anxiety, that can be terrifying to think, well, now I have to get together with friends and go out to dinner. And and you can see how this, this swarm of things that would change for one person might be super exciting and for someone else is like the worst thing they could imagine because they're so used to the reality that they're living in. And so, you know, there's nothing more scary than asking someone to question their own reality and accept or be open to a new reality. Right. Yeah. So,
0: so essentially what you're saying is after the person realizes that they have an attachment to their pain and they have fear or, or, you're saying die, it's important to dive into the, the fear that they may have if they lived life without any pain and try yeah, to sure. kind yeah. of dig into that and what you that know, looks pain, like to
1: them. Pain by definition, right, is a protector at the most basic level. And theoretically, it's meant to be a physical protector, but it takes on um, a different type of protection when it's there for a long time. We organize our lives around it. And it ends up protecting us from lots of things. And so when you take that protection away, then what's left, right? And so you have to make, you have to bring these things to conscious, to a conscious level. I say, you have to take them out of the basement into your living space so you can work with them. And then, and then hopefully the person feels empowered to really analyze whether these things are true or not or helpful or not and make a new decision about how to move forward for instance if there's a fear that you might not be able to set a boundary about how much you're working let's take a look at that let's talk about that and let's figure out how we can set some boundaries how how, you know how you might be able to set some boundaries let's make a plan a strategy so that you know you, you don't need that protection anymore right your brain and nervous system don't need to continue to protect you from that fear um and and that takes some you know sometimes some some courage to be able to even have that conversation much less make a plan and then make a different decision to move forward especially when it comes to like you know going out and exposing yourself to to society when you've had a fear of getting sick um for two years right which is which is something that a lot of people are struggling with right now for sure.
0: Yeah. You know, with my patient, I'm remembering now that he was afraid of what he was going to fill that void of being pain free with. And he said, you know, I could easily see myself if once my pain is gone, I'm going to start drinking, you know, to fill that void. He said that, you know, that's, that's, that's a real reality. I could see that happening.
1: Interesting. So in that case, you know, pain is a protector, maybe a distraction from that old behavior or maybe from a new behavior that he fears might take its place.
0: Yeah, and it was it was so interesting. He also said, you know, I also feel that I'm 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 kind of empty. I haven't had a significant other in many years. I've been divorced for a number of years and and I guess now that I'm talking to you, I could also see how maybe his pain was a distraction from that longing to find a partner,
1: maybe. Yeah, what, are, what a brilliant strategy, right? I mean, what an evolutionarily brilliant strategy to, you know, have something to focus on and work on and something to fix. And, you know, for a lot of people, it actually can even create a community, that you, you build your life around, this trying to fix and figure out, whether it's your healthcare team or whether it's an online support group or whether it's friendships you've made from, you know, being at being in physical therapy or, you know, whatever you've done to try to work on this, um, it, it can almost create a social network that is also very hard to let go of. And so, for this individual you're talking about, it, it it's going to require right some some planning and some strategizing and uh, a conversation with you the physician or who, whoever this this supporting this person to to decide like yeah you're right like what do you want to fill your life with after this um, drinking probably isn't the healthiest behavior but let's, let's like really vision, what, is, what could your life look like? Because it's not my job to tell the person that. It's not your job to, to, to tell the person what that is. It's our job to, to bear witness to their experience and then support them and, you know, and being autonomous and having the self-efficacy to make their own plan.
0: You know, and, and this, this patient, he, he loves golf but he's not playing golf because of his pain, you know, cause he did mention, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get, you know, playing golf again, like I used to, but you know, I have this pain
1: for sure. And then for a lot of, for a lot of people, it's a great place to start as body oriented clinicians. We have the skills and the knowledge to be able to support people in understanding that their body is actually okay, that their brain and nervous system are running the show they're in charge of the pain experience at this point and we need to give them the green light we need to give them permission to start doing some of those um physical activities again they're highly protective um in fact you know this is the way out of pain is to actually start doing those things again it's not like there's some prerequisite that has to happen before you start playing golf again playing golf is actually what's going to get you better and so how can we support you in starting down that road after you understand that you're physically safe to do that, right? Then mm-hmm. it connects back into this other theme of like, what are you going to fill your life with? Well, if golf is your like favorite thing to do, let's start there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Dr. Guasco, did you want to ask anything or mention anything?
2: Yeah. I I you guys have mentioned some some really, really important aspects of this. And I think, um, I mean, this patient just, he sounds so vulnerable, just like if he loses that pain, he's just in this big black space of not knowing, you know, what's next and how he can even manage that, right? Um, and, you know, it's just he, uh, why I always equate pain and anxiety as is, is being such similar things, right? Or the same thing, because he's stuck in this, kind of safety net we talk about safety versus danger that his safety net sort of is this this pain space because it's it's like Charlie said it's uh it's serving such an important role to protect him um and the only way the only way to the other side is through it right um and and that means engaging again and uh, in activities and and um and uh, Charlie what you had said last time about finding meaningful and and enjoyable ways to move your body um I really started to incorporate that more, that language more when I talk with patients. Um, I find that to be just, I, I get a different response from them in terms of like, this person really wants me to to, to do something different than I'm doing in a way that, that seems like it gives more value to my life. Um, and so with this guy, I think that's a great way, a very tangible way. I guess one of the things I would say is Um, really building on the pain education part for this patient um, because that, that sense of safety. And I mean, this guy has lived from what you've told me years and years with people telling him different things and, and him having this narrative about that he's ill. And, and that's, you know, it's a part of his belief system. And so really, really kind of like heavily laying on while you're working on the movement parts that, that sense of safety in, in, you know, what we know from pain education. And, and I think that weaving that stuff in being heavy with that stuff early on, um, can, can really lay a foundation. That way he he can, he can explore it more and, um, and ask questions and and whatever else.
0: Yeah. For those who didn't listen to the last episode, um, Charlie, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about what Dr. Guasco was saying when you're doing your manual therapy, talking about, how the joint is moving well. How the muscles feel healthy.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, th- I think to go back, like, j- just to start, to start, to like take a few steps back, because I appreciate what you said, Doctor guasco about people have seen dozens of clinicians, and a lot of them have been told something really scary based on a biomedical model, and those things become really sticky. And, and that mess, that message alone is probably one of the most common forms of pain attachment that I see, um, because that becomes the reality for that person. And again, we're we're the first person saying, Hey, I'm asking you to question your reality. And these, you know, two dozen clinicians that you've seen before me, um, doesn't that sound kind of scary, right. To, to, to even like start to psychoeducate about the fact that there might be a different way of looking at things, even if the person doesn't understand why, um, you're still asking them to question their own reality, which at a fundamental level is really threatening. Mm. So, (laughs) so, um, you you know, you have to go back to your relationship, which is always where I start, you know, your relationship with the, the client. And I think, you know, Dr. Green, I think the fact that this guy told you, you know, told you that he, he realized he was attached to his symptoms says something about your trust and your relationship with this person. Um, and that sets the foundation for you then to be able to talk, psychoeducate about the biopsychosocial spiritual model or whatever you want to call it, um, and just share some new ideas, um, so that there's an openness, a receptive, receptivity to that. But yeah, in the last podcast, it's, you know, as you're evaluating, as you're treating, as you're as you're showing people movement, you're psychoeducating around how normal things look, how 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 good things are. Um, the fact that a lot of the things that the person might have heard before are no longer true, right? You may have had this objective sign when you saw the physiatrist, but you know three months ago. But I'm not seeing that anymore. I'm really impressed with what I'm seeing, and that sort of demands then well, if if that's not what's causing it, then what is, right? It opens the door to psychoeducate about about pain science, about basic pain science or, you know, whatever psychoeducation feels appropriate for that person in and of itself, as we know, what you share and how you share it, it could be different for everybody. But
0: Yeah. So with these patients, if you did find, a restricted muscle that was really tight and and maybe their range of motion wasn't what you would expect it to be, what what would you tell them? Would you not tell them that and tell them the positive things that you found in your physical exam? Or?
1: That's a good question. Um, it depends, as, as it often does, right? Um, we know muscle tension. Um, can be a significant objective finding that can cause pain through a nociceptive input. Um, We also know that muscle tension can simply be an output, the brain's way of trying to protect us from some real or perceived threat. So most of the time I find that the held muscle tension in the body is reflexive and it's a representation of the sensitivity of the nervous system. It's a result of the pain a result of the stress of the fear more than it is a cause. So if I find muscle tension that either is normative, like let's just say I can tell the person's just kind of built that way, right? They're, they're a tighter built athlete, or they're a super flexible athlete. I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. I'm going to pass it over. On the other hand, if it seems to add up to a pattern, a physical pattern that kind of makes sense based on what I'm seeing, um that maybe connect to the injury that looks like it could be part of a pattern. no susceptive pattern. by no susceptive, I mean like there's something wrong with the body, then I'm gonna call it out and we can we can treat that and we can talk about it in a way that doesn't increase fear, right Because those things are really treatable. Like we all as manual therapists and US physicians know how to treat this stuff. Um, but if it if it doesn't fit the pattern and it's just a like, what I would call a normative finding, I'm probably not going to call it out, um, or I'm or I'm going to call it out and say, hey, I don't think this is causing your pain, but this is a, this is a performance opportunity for you in your life. Like you want to be able to play golf, if we can improve the mobility and the the muscle activation in this part of your body, you're going to swing a golf club much better. So let's remove that barrier, right? Not to make the pain go you can do the things you want to do in your life and so that's how i sort of flip it sometimes to take away the fear does that make sense
0: yeah it does make sense it does make sense dr guasco could you maybe give some examples of what you noticed um when you've been talking or using this language and and approach with your patients
2: well one of the things i think you're speaking more to the play-by-play interaction while you're treating somebody or while you're examining them I was even talking more and that, and I, and I'm doing that too, but I was talking even more about um, treatment planning, you know? Okay. So you have this person who's, let's take your patient, who's afraid to do X, Y, and Z. Let's your patient was afraid to play golf or engage in that sort of activity. Um, And you, you want to find ways with them explore ways that moving is not a threat, right? So you you ask them about their life and what in their past has been something that they've turned to, or you know, with other people that they've engaged in that they've been you know that that has been a, an enjoyable experience, um, you know, socially or whatever, and, um, and and creating that as part of the context of your treatment plan is uh, is really I think a helpful thing for people because they start to realize that. Um, they can they can move in those certain ways and that that's built upon one their their trust in the relationship with you like charlie said absolutely foundationally um and in that in that moment to moment sort of interaction while you're treating somebody right so i i do a lot of um discussion about um yeah normative findings on examination and you know what this range of motion looks like and if there is any restriction why not why not maximize your, your functional movement, your range of, your range of motion so that the activities that we, that we, that you do engage in, um, you can do that to the best of your ability. And that's, and I, you know, I just normalized that, but that's, everybody has restrictions from, you know, in different places in their body. And it would make sense that to, to move more freely and, um, and, uh, efficiently would, would, uh, would, would lend itself towards more health. So, um, So having both of those sort of levels at the play-by-play with inducing messages of safety, introducing messages of safety, but also in exploring ways to move your body that are enjoyable. Because again, it's through those activities when they leave the clinic, it's through engaging in life again, where they actually, you know, their pain starts to not be a part of their life anymore.
1: Yeah, I like that. I I hear you're talking about like at a conceptual level As a clinician, how do you conceptualize it? And then how do you share that with the person, like at the end of your exam? Um, and that's just as much of an art as psychoeducation is. And I, I'm, I'm consuming, uh, an NOI group course right now called less pain, better performance. This is, uh, Mosley, David Butler's group. Oh, cool. Um, He's done a lot of foundational, you know, pain science research. And it's brilliant and it's, it's deep and it's, it's sciency. And, um, it really gets deep, like to a biochemical level, sort of the neuroimmune, uh, uh, technical physiology. So, you know, th- they might disagree with some of the ways that I talk about this. Um, but I, I like to keep things as simple as I can for my clients precisely because belief is such an important predictor of outcome. So as a clinician, I might enjoy knowing about astrocytes and glial cells and, you know, the tripartite synapse and all these things, but my patients don't care about that. They don't need to know that. Um, so I stay at the level of like, you know, is this uh, can I normalize this scoliosis, this asymmetry, this difference in muscle firing between the glutes on both sides, this difference in range of motion? Can I put it into like a deconditioning adaptive change bucket that then allows us to look at these things as, you know, these are these are showing up because you haven't been moving. And so the only way we're going to get to them, to address them, is to get you to start moving again in, in joyful, meaningful, playful ways, hopefully. Um mm-hmm. And most of the time, that's where those findings fall, you know? Most of the time, they don't add up to a nociceptive pain-generating pattern, you know, a bottom-up pattern that's feeding the brain's tendency to make pain. So, um, yeah, I, I try to keep it at a really a, a level for people where um, I can keep the fear as low as possible, let's just say. Because <laughs> as we're talking about... As we're talking about pain attachment, you know, less fear is better at the end of the day.
0: Sure. So I, I was talking to one of my attendings who has a very biomechanical approach to manual medicine, as most manual medicine physicians do, I think. I'm
1: sorry to hear that. <laughs> and, and I said,
0: I said, well, you know, if a patient doesn't think that they're going to get better or they're attached to their pain. I can do OMT on them until the cows come home and they're not going to get better. And they responded to me. They said, well, I think that someone who is attached to their pain or has fear living in their body, they move in ways that result in compensatory patterns biomechanical strain patterns which causes their pain because of their fear of movement
1: absolutely yeah We, we we know that stress and fear and trauma have real biomechanical effects they they actually affect muscle timing muscle strength precision of movement, coordination, control of movement. They affect the whole cortical body matrix. They, they, they have a real impact on these things. So the, the, you know, my, my, my knee jerk reaction to your colleague, who's clearly working in more of a biomedical model is that yes, they're, they're right. That treating the body can be helpful but they're not practicing evidence-based medicine if that's all they're doing, because mm-hmm. they're only treating one very small part of the picture, of the pain picture.
0: Yeah. So then, so then that begs the question, and I think we've probably touched on this in different ways, but I'm gonna ask, how, how do you initiate this process in this patient? To move freely without fear.
1: Yeah, are we are we still trying to stay on this idea of identity or to, yes. sorry of attachment?
0: Yes. So this patient correct. So, so this patient per, so would me, be. Yeah. yeah so go let, ahead. Let,
1: let me let me start there, and then let's get into the how do you support people in getting to move again? Because I think yeah. those two are connected. Um that i i've gotten to the point because pain attachment is such a common almost normal universal phenomenon that i like to to talk about it conceptually first with people and i like to let them know like this is a thing that happens to people i'm not saying it happens to you (laughs) but it happens to people it's very common it's very normal And I just wonder what you think of this idea, right? And so this is my sort of non-threatening way of normalizing it and bringing it up in conversation so that we can talk about it. Because otherwise it flies under the radar. So my first question is, um, what would be good about your symptoms going away? And people can usually make, make that list really quickly or have that conversation really easily, you know? They have all these things that they would do. And as a clinician, you note that. You're like, oh, these are the things, these are this person's goals. Like, this is where they want to go. But then you ask the question, what would change in your life about your work, about your relationships, about your life patterns? What would you give up, right? What are the things that you'd abandon? And that's a harder list for people to make, and they sometimes have to reflect on that. And then what would be challenging about the symptoms going away? Like, what would be really hard? what would really what would really be challenging about your work would you have to show up in a different way in your career would you have to show up in a different way as a partner would your partner stop caretaking you right would they go back to being super independent the way they were before and you'd lose sort of this connection you have with your partner that's based on pain these are very hard things for people to talk about they can be very upsetting but they're so important especially when people are struggling and they've done everything else to try to unlearn their symptoms. Um, these are very important conversations to have. Um, but, but what it does is it then frees people up to, it removes a barrier, right? To free them up to start talking about movement again and to start getting brave and courageous with starting to think about some of these answers to that first question. What would be great about your symptoms going away? Cool. Let's buy some of those things, right? We've already established that your body is safe. Your body's okay. We've established that movement is the way for you to start feeling better again. There's no prerequisite to that. You're going to start today, right? And let's make a plan and let's do it together. It's not my, again, it's not my job to tell them like, I want you to go run one minute and then walk a minute. And then I want you to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to micromanage that process for people. I want it to be their idea. And I want them to be excited about it. You know, I want them to get a little bit like some goosebumps about like, wow, that's possible. You know, there's a little awe and wonder. Even in, in that conversation. Does that process usually
0: take a, a fair amount of time? person to get excited about moving when they've been in chronic pain for such a long time?
1: Oh, uh, that's a great question. I'm just thinking like for some people, it can take a little bit of convincing, especially the more attached they are to their symptoms. Um, I can think of a client who had this rule about her hip that it, she wanted to give it six months of rest before she was going to try anything. That wasn't my rule. This is just a friend, not a client. That wasn't my rule. I just thought it was interesting. She said, you know, in six months, I'm going to be good. I was like, okay, that's cool. Like belief predicts outcome, right? So if you feel like you need to rate six months, that's fine. But most people in my office, when we're having this conversation, after we've developed a relationship, after we've established physical safety, there's nothing wrong with the body. We sort of know what's going on people often are in tears. People often get very emotional, and this is very frequently an aha moment for people where they shift like in an instant from one reality into a totally new reality. And it doesn't mean they're not intimidated or scared by it, but the possibility for them is like the most thrilling thing. And as a clinician, it's equally thrilling to see someone, (laughs) right? You know, light up and have emotions around this. Um, so it can happen within within one conversation.
2: Yeah, I, I would say I, I've seen both of those things, right? So a, a complete shift in reality—you see it in front of your face, and it's powerful. And they come back next time, they're like I did all these things and I was fine. And then, and then other times, because like you said uh before charlie it's about belief it's how strongly your, your belief is in in that narrative of fear and, and illness or sickness uh versus uh, versus health and safety so it depends on where they are in that process and i think that again the foundational part is your relationship with them that you're there with them uh through the process you're like their cheerleader cheerleader and and uh you know that support um and you come with this expertise um, especially being that you can put your hands on and treat and, and diagnose and you know, that, that offers so much. Um, but yeah, I think you can see it. Sometimes it takes quite a while. People are really stuck on it.
0: So essentially what you're saying is sometimes you will see in one conversation, a patient go from being attached to their pain to realizing or detaching themselves from their pain and realizing that, oh, I can move, and be pain-free.
1: Yeah, or, or starting, starting to detach. Percent. Right. It, it sometimes it's the start of a, of a process, that leads to the letting go of attachment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great way in because I think giving people permission to get back to living their lives and doing the things that they enjoy is such a protective factor. Right. It's such a By definition, there's a safety there, like you're starting to fill that void with something that that they love. And so you may not even have to talk about attachment. Um, They might make that decision themselves. So this can be two different processes. But, um, Mm. yeah, they can go together for sure.
0: Is it ever. So you mentioned that, you know, sometimes people that are in pain, they form a community and have a social network and friends that are also living in pain is it is that ever a good thing i mean what if someone's you know longing for friends and this is their only way that they can imagine that they can interact with people and cultivate friendships could that be an an exception to the rule
1: sure yeah i've had this conversation a lot with people where once we've had the conversation they recognize what's going on, right? It's very conscious. Then they get to make a decision about whether it's working for them or not. And some people decide it's working just fine. And that's okay. You know, I just want them to be eyes wide open. I don't need to, to decide for them. Um, yeah. there, there can be a lot of purpose and meaning that comes from identifying as a, a chronic pain, a person in chronic pain, or identifying as someone that, um, you know, somaticizes their emotions as physical sensations. These are some mm-hmm. of the best pain coaches we have. Um, so there can be an embracing um, of this as an identity. And identity sort of is, is one part of pain attachment Right, there are lots of different ways people get attached to pain, but when it becomes an identity, that's a very strong reason to be attached. You
0: know, when what exactly do you mean by identity, Charlie? This is something that uh, is, you know, Ben Green pain is part of who I am, just as green is my last name. <laughs> that's probably a bad analogy, but. It's just, what do you, what exactly do you mean by identity?
1: Yeah. I, identity is an interesting word. Like I work with a lot of athletes and the more elite an athlete gets, the more that sport is part of their identity, right? It's what they do for a living. Their whole social network is around it, their income, um, their, their self-esteem. So, when, when an athlete has pain, there's usually a lot of fear precisely because it pokes at their identity. It challenges their identity. It threatens their identity as an athlete. And there's a lot of fear in that. Right. Um, Once you've had pain for a while and that becomes your new normal, that becomes your new reality. You construct your life around that. You sort of have no choice. And so, whatever that construction looks like, um, once you get used to it, that becomes your new identity. Like, here I am. Now I live my life this way. And to have to go back to something else, again, is like a threat to the the core of who that person has become over the course of years and sometimes decades, right? Some people are happy to let go of that identity and other people aren't. Um, I, I have a story that I often tell as my way of normalizing um, the concept of pain attachment, because it shows up in so many different parts of our life. And when, when the COVID shutdown started, two of my kids were starting high school as freshmen. And one of them was starting at a new middle school. And so to me, it was like, as a dad, it was like the worst thing in the entire world. Like there's nothing that could happen socially and developmentally for my kids, that could be worse than that. You know, it's like its own kind of pain. Like they can't go to school. They're not gonna be able to make friends. Their learning is gonna be negatively affected, right? You go right into catastrophizing as a parent. And they started online learning and they were home every day and we figured it out. We got it set up. We didn't have a choice, right? And over the course of months, I kind of got used to it. And they kind of got dialed in with online learning They were home every day. I got to see them at lunch. Um, We got to hang out. I was more involved in their schooling than I would have been otherwise. Um, I didn't have to get up early and like take them to school. I was like, this is pretty sweet. And so when the schools reopened right a year and a half later or whatever, however long it was, um, that became its own new threat. I was like, I don't want my kids to go back to school. It's great. Like, I don't have to get up again. I have to make them lunches every day. I'm not going to get to see them in the middle of the day, right? And so what, what at first was, like, really threatening and felt dangerous actually became quite lovely. And then I had to do it in the opposite direction. And, of course, it's best for them to be at school with their friends and having a normal school experience. But... I just recognized in myself, like, I had to really take a look at that. And um, and that was a process, for sure. So this is, this is my way of just saying, like, this happens to all of us in so many different parts of our life. Like, why not pain, too?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see how that could happen, for sure. <clears throat> what else, Charlie, did you want to share about um, attachment theory to pain? Unless Dr. Guasco, you had something else that you wanted to mention or comment? Uh, no, it's okay.
1: I think I think just one one thing I want to just also say is this is hard. Like this is one of the hardest parts of the process for people. This this like looking under the hood, you know, is is not so fun. Like people would much rather have it be a body problem and see their their manipulation body worker do this work of looking under the hood and talking about personality traits um, and understanding how this connects to past trauma, you know, like we're asking a lot of people. So I want to say it's not always necessary. I just find it's a really important barrier um, for some people that, that um, are really struggling and have tried a lot of the other strategies um, and haven't, haven't seen results. And, you know, it it takes a relationship and it takes an openness to, to be able to do this, um, to be able to leave behind what's familiar. really.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. I, I think that
0: the relationship with the patient, how important that is. Um, and you know, as, as clinicians, we don't have a lot of time in our visits. And so, it's so easy to to just feel so rushed and and not be thorough or not be empathetic and it takes a lot of <clears throat> self work really yeah you know to to be empathetic and be kind and be patient and you know make the peel the patient feel that you know they're the only one who has all your attention when they're you know sitting in front of you and that's, wow, it's not easy to do, but I, I think that's the first step of, of this process. I would
2: say another important thing is that you don't have to, you don't have to rush with this stuff either because part of building that relationship is, is being patient, right. With them and really look, as they discuss all the nuances of their, experience with you right um most of it is very much related to you know what they are not able to do and how and where they hurt right having that space open for that to 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 kind of sink in at first and then just planting little little seeds here and there you know what i mean like it doesn't it just you what i like to do is is add some of the as, as, it, as it pertains to their particular story in their individual story these seeds about safety and danger signaling, about how, you know, you know, personality styles and the way they interact with other people in their lives has an influence on their system. And, and sometimes I even talk about it as a more on a more broad level. And the more you do that and give them things to think about and little experiments to try and that sort of stuff, I find that that like that builds a conversation over time, especially if you don't have a lot of time with them, um, but you do it in a way that's very validating.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I think you know. I'm, I'm, as you're talking, Dr. Wasco. I'm thinking about the difference between like a physician practice, a DO practice, and a physical therapist practice, where we're sort of sometimes blessed with having more time and space to do that. And I always, I always sort of prided myself on like seeing someone once and then they're better, and working hard to not create dependency on me and empowering people to be their own self healers. But as you're talking, I'm realizing like the value of having a physician that's in your life that you see regularly, like the two of you and how that allows you to over time, um, do, do this work. You don't maybe need, you don't maybe have 30 or minutes or 60 minutes, but if you're having little touch points over the course of their lives, you have the ability to really make a significant impact um, on them, and so I'm 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 reflecting like that I I maybe can need to let go of some of this fear that people are going to get dependent on me because as long as I'm I'm practicing evidence-based medicine uh, and what I see in my practice is they the more they learn the more they can apply these things in their lives. The more they thrive, and so um, because I'm not just doing manual therapy anymore, I think I can relax into that. Like, I don't need to get them in and out, right?
2: <laughs> right. No. I, that. Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with that a lot too. About the the dependency on on you know you sending the wrong messages about you know treating them and they they think it's a physical thing only, and you know you as you plant these seeds along the way and build that sort of framework for them to work in and feel safe that they can come back and like discuss it with you and you can try out different ideas and that sort of thing it allows them to build their repertoire and um and really kind of playing the long game now that's you know variable depending on the person the long game of you want them to develop their own it's like you know build their on their training wheels so that they can go off and do their thing and you're right it's walking a line between you know you know how much is there, is their dependency versus you know you you just push them off and saying okay good luck sort of thing. But I think there's a there's a lot to be said about you know taking your time, especially with some people. Some people you like you they just it's just easier you know. But
1: yeah, you know. well that was a, that was a real gift to me. Thank you, Dr. Guasco, for get making me think.
0: yeah thank thank you both of you for making me think i there's there's so much to think about and
1: reflect on but anything else charlie i don't want you to miss the sunset i know i I just went out there to look it's like 10 minutes and i one thing i appreciate about the sunset on the west coast um because people are like lining up along the cliff um as it gets closer it's this really I've been thinking a lot about awe and wonder, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna create some type of a resource or, or some type of a list of ways people can access awe and wonder in their lives because it's so important and because it's so missing for a lot of us. Um, and not everyone can travel, right? And, and so it's like, are there ways we can do this? But the sunset is so cool because um, everybody comes to the beach and they have this like present moment this collective present moment all together, there's like a shared humanity and this appreciation for mother nature that I think is so beautiful. And I'm sad that in Colorado, you know, we don't get to do this. Like we don't see the sun go down at the uh, the far end of the ocean, right? At the horizon. So this is one of my favorite parts about being by the ocean is the, the, the awe and wonder that comes from watching the sunset. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm living vicariously through you. I think those are the very, very impactful moments of you're right awe and inspiration and being present. I think that's, that's huge is actually being present. Um, in our bodies and in our minds,
1: and yeah, well, yeah, and it's hard to I mean, hard to do hard to do when you're in pain, right? Because you don't really want to be present in your body when you're in pain. Yeah, um, Very it's uncomfortable. True. You don't want to be there. But I think through all and wonder these through these adding these new experiences, we can we can hopefully create a new input to the nervous system, one that's more biased towards safety. And if we can get people to experience awe and wonder um, while, being, you know, while being present, that's a new sort of uh, input that maybe interrupts the prediction, the predictive coding, predictive processing idea that if we can insert some experience that interrupts the brain's prediction that there's danger we often see the brain update its predictive model and so if i'm watching the sunset and i notice wow my back doesn't hurt because this sunset is so incredible and the brain recognizes that then there's a good chance it'll update that prediction and switch from danger to safety yeah
2: you know, a lot one more thing to that too you had mentioned this kind of collective experience the that sort of connecting with other other human beings that that humanity you know uh thing that you had mentioned is is like is so so important in this in this context right in the context mm. of pain what an isolating and invisible experience right it, it makes you by definition remove yourself from life and other people right unless you're going to connect in these ways that that may at times not be healthy when it's just you know uh, you know, embodying that pain experience, but to do something like that, where you're standing on the edge of the cliff and looking at this and, and you get a sense of something much bigger than yourself, um, that you're yeah. with people, engaging so with other people in ways that are, that are healthy. And, and I think that's just a, such a huge part of, of getting, getting over
1: pain. Yeah, that's well said. And I think, you know, it's sad. It's sad for me to think that people get attached to the world being very small and losing that sense of awe and wonder. So I feel I have an obligation to people, even though for them and it can't be my idea and I can't force them. I have an obligation to help them move through this attachment to whatever is their current reality, which is why I think we're talking about this. I think it's important to call it out because. On the other side of it, people find that their life is more rich and full of joy and, and purpose and meaning. And um, that's what I'd want if I was going to see someone for my pain, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Guasco, Charlie, for your commentary and your insights and knowledge and experience. Any Any plugs that you wanted to make, Charlie, before we sign off?
1: Um, I think just, you know, I, I do my best to put out content on social media, especially on Instagram, at Charlie Merrill, and right now that's probably the best way for people if they want to hear my daily ramblings about this and that and the other thing, and I'm going to put together something on awe and wonder here pretty soon, because I've had so much of that here in California. Um, so yeah, follow me there, and that's a great way to keep in touch with my teaching and my other projects and... Courses, everything else you need to know. So, thanks for asking.
0: Awesome, great. Well, thanks again, Charlie, and
1: enjoy your time in San Diego.
0: And uh, I'm jealous, but excited for you.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you a picture of the sunset. So look for that.
0: Nice, nice. Well, <laughs> wonderful. You have a great evening. Thanks again for being on. Thanks, Charlie.
1: Thank you both. I appreciate you both very much. I appreciate talking with you.
0: Yeah, thanks. it's been great. You have a great evening. Bye. You too. hope you all enjoyed this conversation and took away some clinical pearls for your chronic pain patients are they attached to their pain we will never know unless we meet our patients where they are at with empathy kindness and the conviction we will walk the path with them as they detach from pain Please follow Charlie Merrill on Instagram at Charlie Merrill. And we will see you in the next episode of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast.